Thanks for joining me for part two of Lucy Nevitt and Verity Nevitt's story. If you've come this far, I'll presume you've listened to part one. So in this episode, we discuss the story of the Gemini Project and have a mental health chat as well. This is how part two of their story went. In part two of this podcast, we're going to talk about all the work you do to help people with their mental health and other victim survivors of sexual abuse. Despite the unimaginable pain you both went through, you managed to create something truly positive and inspiring out of it, which is called the Gemini Project. Now, I can understand the meaning behind why you called it Gemini, but tell me why you were both inspired to start it, how you came up with the name, and what you wanted to achieve with it. So I think it kind of stemmed from taking these negative experiences and creating something meaningful and positive out of it, because, you know, something rubbish had happened and... I think for both of us, we didn't want it to just be this rubbish experience that kind of like stained our lives, so to speak. So to be able to make it meaningful and positive in our own way, kind of like took our power back as well. We changed that experience and we were able to give it a different narrative than the fact it was just something awful that happened. We learned so much throughout that experience and sometimes the hard way. We're conscious that we didn't want others to have to go through those hard lessons in the same ways. So we kind of felt by putting what we know out there, it could help others. We'd found so many failings in so many systems, like the justice system, education systems along the way. And we wanted to kind of enact change and draw attention to those things. And that seemed like a good path of doing that. We noticed that a lot, like some of these things just weren't heard about. And I don't think you would hear about it unless you went through it. So being vocal about these things that weren't out there was quite important to us. It was also partly for therapeutic reasons for ourselves in terms of being able to write about our experience and creating the positive change for ourselves and for others. It gave us our power and our voices back in a really nice way and just made us put a positive spin on it, basically, which is much easier to sit with. Given the court case you went through, which tried to silence you. Is that something that you're working on through Gemini? And what other parts of the system or legislation or projects are you trying to work on through Gemini? Yeah, so the court case we went through, when we came up with the settlement, we proposed that we would campaign on something to protect people, survivors that were sued in the same way we were. So basically with that court case, we were hoping if we went through to the end, it would set a precedent in law. And we were kind of upset that we weren't able to do that. So instead, we've decided to campaign for a law that kind of works in a way a bit like a whistleblower's law, that when survivors of sexual violence, domestic violence, um, speak out, that they should be protected as whistleblowers and they should be protected from legal action from their abusers so that they can't be further traumatised in that way. So that's kind of our main focus at the moment. And we've also collaborated with uh, the Centre for Women's Justice. We're compiling a dossier at the moment to see how extensive that form of civil litigation is. Because there's no evidence at the moment, no statistics like of how widespread it is. So we're compiling some research to basically see like how often this is happening, in what ways it's happening, to kind of like underpin any further 
laws or stuff we decide to lobby on and just have that like hard evidence there yeah it would also allow for us to put in for a Westminster Hall debate so we've got a working group together at the moment that um, it's Centre for Women's Justice, Rights of Women, Rape Crisis South London, Public Law Project and a number of barristers and, and lawyers that's kind of to focus on the way these cases are funded so with legal aid and things but also to kind of end the practice and then we've also got I think three different MPs so members of parliament we're working with and have meetings with and we're we're all sort of working to come to some kind of legislation which is still in the works at the moment of like what form that will take the dossier that we're working on is going to be used to put in for a Westminster Hall debate and from that debate we will then look into some kind of legislation so it's kind of still you know in the process of seeing where that's going but it's nice to be working on something especially with so many kind of influential people when we're we're still quite a small charity so you know we feel quite lucky to be working on that i often say on this pod lucy and verity that toxic masculinity is a thing but it definitely starts in school and i think if you nip it in the bud then then you can stop sexual harassment happening in school and then hopefully you can stop sexual harassment happening in adult life when it comes to male violence against women is that something you agree with and is that something you'd like to maybe participate in in regards to kind of speaking in schools and doing that sort of proactive work yeah so our first kind of campaign was having compulsory sex education from basically school starting age you know like it can be age appropriate it doesn't have to be like shocking or super detailed or graphic you know like when you're five you can just use those kind of like toys and stuff that therapists sometimes do and just teach consent like if a person hugs you and you don't want it you can say no and just teaching those things from a young age I know when lots of things happened to us when we were young we just didn't know what happened we didn't know how to explain these things we didn't know how to deal with it we weren't given any tools to recognize or deal with those things and i think that would have helped it would have been really beneficial child sexual abuse happens peer-on-peer abuse from a young age happens and i think that's not necessarily acknowledged enough and early interventions tend to be the best things especially from an educational sense. These things have been taught, these concepts of toxic masculinity and like how men might behave are taught so we can also teach the alternative to that. And I think that's a very good starting point to kind of counteract the roots of the problem, like where it stems from, where it's learned. So yeah, no, that's something we're definitely really supportive on. And what are your hopes or ambitions for Gemini going forward? Where can people find you on social media? And what else have you got going on that you can tell the listeners? I think for us at the moment, we're just, you know, seeing it grow. It's kind of, when we started it, we did not know what to expect. And the goal was always just to help even one person. Um, We did that almost within, the, I think, the first week. So since then, we're just kind of like running with it, seeing where it goes. It's growing at a faster rate than we imagined, which has been quite difficult to keep up with, especially we both work. I have a pretty full on job as well. I work as a complex independent victim advocate for another charity and that's a pretty intense role. So to do this as well with the Gemini Project, it's kind of just balancing those things, but we're bringing other people on board. So yeah, it will be interesting as we, we grow. This year's more for growth really, but to see the work that we do that's had an impact and to get messages from survivors thanking us and also reaching out for help is really important for us and you know incredibly fulfilling but yeah basically just pushing for protections and changes to be written into the law is is our current focus and you can find us on all social media at the gemini proj and what has it taught you 
both about yourselves and how has it helped you grow when it comes to your recovery journey? I think it's been the most helpful thing for my recovery. I think it's taught me that just my voice is important. I didn't really realise when I first started speaking out that it was helping so many people. I remember once I did a tweet and it was about not being able to be the little spoon. And I felt that that was actually really personal and I deleted it like quite quickly after. But then I had a message from a friend who said, oh my gosh, like I, this made me realise why I'm so uncomfortable with that and that something that happened to me was sexual assault and like, thank you. So I think it's getting those messages has helped. But I think, yeah, the biggest thing is just being taught you know, my voice matters, it's important, and to continue using it because it's helping others. And in helping others, it's helped me. I think that's been so central to my healing journey. And you, Lucy? Yeah, so I think in terms of myself, it's taught me that I can feel things and deal with it and I won't break, (laughs) which is really important, just changing those things because I definitely think all my mental health issues stem from that avoidance. And definitely when I read about PTSD and stuff like that avoidance increases PTSD and things like that. So I definitely, I kind of made things worse for myself. And I think now I know how to go about things in a healthy way and I'm much more open to those things. So I'd say before I would have probably said I was resilient, but I wasn't like now I have like true resilience, which I think is really important to have just kind of as I go through life. I think that's probably the biggest thing. It's taught me just that going through therapy, realizing that I am a person of worth and value when I didn't think I was. Yeah, and the Gemini project just kind of adds to that by showing that we are having some kind of impact, no matter how small that is, that you know is kind of worthwhile. Our final topic of conversation, girls, and it's one I try and have with every special guest, which is a general mental health chat. So it's a mix of quick fire and more deeper stuff, and it's one I try and have with every guest. So firstly... How would you say your mental health is at the moment? Lucy, do you want to go first? I'd say peaks and troughs. Not great, but improving. (laughs) And Verity, how would you say yours is? Yeah, like today I'm good, but the past week's been pretty tough. I've been having a lot of PTSD dreams, which kind of impact my mood for the whole day. And I hadn't had those for like a little while. But yeah, so probably kind of, yeah, like a mixed bag. I get frustrated that it still impacts me so, so much later. This happened like four years ago, but I'm getting there. Verity, what age do you think you were when you first became self-aware and realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I don't know. Um, I guess I kind of always kind of knew that. I don't know. Because I'd been dealing with my mental health for such a long time and been in therapy and stuff from such a young age, I think I kind of always knew that it was mental health. Whereas I think maybe Lucy may have been quite different in that respect. Lucy, what was it like for you? I think I was probably like 19 when I first admitted to myself that these things could be a mental health issue. I don't remember where I was or anything like that, but I was definitely a lot older when I realised this could be a mental health issue rather than something else like asthma. And when it comes to your triggers, Lucy, you can go first. What are some of the triggers that affect you? It could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound, it could be a social environment. What can you tell me here? And have you figured all of them out yet or not? I say no. I think part of having like anxiety and PTSD is you kind of constantly scanning your environment and like the way you live to see what impacts that. I think I'm quite good at being aware of what does impact me. So like certain things that I avoid now are just natural. Like I'd have to think like, what were my triggers back in the beginning when I was first like 
18, like dealing with anxiety. I'd say definitely my main trigger at the moment and then as well is schoolwork and exams. Like, I don't know why it makes me so anxious. It just does. I put so much pressure on myself to do well that in my mind, these things become massive problems for me to solve. Like I'm so scared of failing that I will like avoid things like studying until I absolutely have to. There's no greater motivator than sheer panic. <laughs> so then it obviously makes it worse. I literally create a situation for myself, which is intensely pressurized because I've procrastinated up to the absolute last minute and I need to get things done. <laughs> so then I kind of cause this almost breakdown for myself where I just tell myself I'm rubbish, I'm gonna fail. So yeah, I've learned now I need to give myself more time in this year. I've actually been quite good at doing that. I think being in lockdown and not having other distractions that I can fill my time with has kind of made me give enough time <laughs> to these things that I usually worry over. I tend to struggle sleeping, especially when I'm studying and not being able to switch off my thoughts. So I kind of like had to realize sleep hygiene's a thing, not be on my phone or something like an hour before I go to sleep. I tend to go down, I have like hot milk and brandy <laughs> and I'll just sit with that hot drink and hug it. And that's quite grounding. Me noticing like the sensation of the heat keeps me present and kind of keeps me out of those like typical anxious racing thoughts. Being outside really helps. So just like if I'm feeling anxious when I wake up, I'll go outside and I'll just walk barefoot on the grass. And again, I think that's just about grounding myself to that moment and just recognizing like the small things like bird song and stuff like that it just draws me away from those racing thoughts and verity what are your triggers my biggest two triggers are like these two specific brands of cologne so scent is probably my biggest trigger sometimes i'll just be on a train or in a supermarket and then just be hit with that smell because you can't predict who's gonna be wearing that and i'll have a really vivid flashback and i get just really overcome with anxiety and i have to just like move away from that smell because i get really panicky I shake and I sometimes cry it's really embarrassing but I think it's kind of easy to cover and thankfully it doesn't happen too often I also have OCD so that kind of manifests itself as dermatillomania which is something I just haven't spoken about publicly because I'm really ashamed about it but basically whenever I'm anxious or stressed I just pick up my skin for a long time so I'm working at overcoming that I had therapy like directly after the sexual assault but I had to stop because I didn't want my notes to be handed over during the police investigation so I'm still on the waiting list sort of since the police investigation ended in 2019 I'm still waiting for you know specialist trauma therapy and I think that'll be really helpful for me because I definitely don't have the best coping mechanisms at all so yeah I'm kind of looking forward to that I guess it's still very much a journey. When it comes to the first conversation you both had with someone about your mental health who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like something that was a big moment and a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or was it something quite insignificant and normalised? Lucy, why don't you go first? Yeah, I think it was with a uni friend. I can't really remember what was said, only that it was kind of like the first time that I'd admitted to somebody else that I struggled with anxiety. I think it was kind of in response to them disclosing something that like I felt comfortable enough to kind of be like, oh yeah, that's kind of me too. It just made me feel like heard and normal. I'd internalized so much stigma and was so unkind to myself that it was just really beneficial having someone tell me that I was deserving of help and I didn't need to be feeling like that. I was very much the kind of person that would advocate for mental health care, especially with like seeing my sister, I'd be like, yeah, you need to go get help. But for some reason I never gave that advice or same level of care to myself. I kind of felt like I wasn't deserving of that. I just kind of 
like typical British stiff upper lip thing, like get on with it. I was very brutal with myself, I'd say. So that was significant in terms of it, me realizing those things and it being a push to finally get the help that I needed, but insignificant in the fact that it was just a conversation with a friend and it didn't really like, at the time, like recognize on my radar that that was like a big thing. Verity, what was the story for you? So I think I started speaking about it when I was 17. So it was literally after a suicide attempt and I was put on antidepressant. So I've been taking Sertraline ever since. And it was like flicking a switch. I was so lucky in that I had no side effects and that it helped instantly and to such a degree that antidepressants saved my life. And they helped so much that allowed me to speak about my mental health as if it was something in the past. I felt that I was kind of like healed. So it was far easier for me to talk about. And then once I was open, it was kind of okay to then speak about it, even when I was struggling and had, you know, bad periods again. So I think, yeah, just like healing from it and then finding that space to be comfortable enough talking about it um, was really helpful. And now I'm pretty okay with being really open. Like I'm not even that bothered. Like all my self-harm scars are healed. So I don't go around covering them like I used to when I was a teenager. I used to wear like bandanas around my arm, like as like a bracelet or something (laughs) and like long sleeves and stuff. But I just, I'm pretty chill with it now I'm definitely not really asked about the stigma as I once was and when it comes to the tools and methods you both use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked maybe which ones that haven't Lucy do you want to go first as I understand that ballet is a big one for you tell me more about that yeah so I've always done ballet like literally since I was like four or five years old and it was always kind of like my escapism. I didn't really realise until I stopped when I went to university. That was really, really important for me. I kind of like when I go, I kind of go into my own little zone (laughs) where it's just me and the music and you have to be conscious of your body because it's so technical. You know, you have to focus on your breathing. You have to focus on how you're holding yourself. So that kind of forces you to be present in the moment. You can't, your mind cannot be elsewhere. And so when I'm not feeling great, it just helps me connect with myself. It's also quite expressive which I find really nice. But yeah, I think specifically, I just, I can't think of anything else when I'm dancing. There aren't any racing thoughts. It's almost a form of mindfulness in the sense that it makes you present. And it's the thing I find that grounds me the most. And Verity, what tools and methods do you use? Um, Mine aren't great. When I'm really bad, I tend to drink or like self-harm. So that's not great. But Something that I do do when I'm like kind of sad is I have this really like nice blanket. I kind of wrap myself in a blanket and I put the hairdryer on. I know that sounds a bit weird, but the sound is like, I guess kind of like white noise and then I just can't hear anything. And then I have that heat source and it just helps me focus on it. It drives my boyfriend insane because he hates the sound of it and hates the way like the heat makes the air. But it's like one thing that I've done now for like years and it just helps me to like calm down and feel comfortable again. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think first and foremost, having the resources there available so that when people do open up that they are supported by professionals. I think at the moment that's not necessarily there, that safety net. Like if people do talk about it, you're going to be on a waiting list maybe for like two years. It's all very well and good having supportive friends and family to talk to about these things, but nothing compares to those treatment options. And that's often not an option for so many people. I think support services should be specialist as well. For example, rape survivors should have access to trauma-focused therapies. Black people should have access to black therapists. 
for example, I think treatment has got to take an individual approach and focus on each person's case rather than kind of a one-size-fits-all approach, which is kind of what we have now. CBT is the general go-to therapy. Doctors tend to work just down a list of SSRIs rather than having one that's picked for you. You get the first therapist you're given. I think therapists aren't good therapists for everyone because people are so different and having specialists who understand your culture and your life experiences is so important and necessary if they're going to help you in any way. I think without understanding you as a person and your background, you can't offer the best solutions. And that's something I don't think spoken about enough. I also kind of think psychological education is key. I think so many people aren't aware of what constitutes mental health issues. Knowing when and where to ask for help or when something is wrong is something that should be taught and would be helpful. I think that would also help reduce the stigma if people were able to realise kind of why these things happen in terms of like from a biological basis or on a cognitive level, the reasons kind of behind these disorders. I think that would help so many people kind of not internalise that stigma and just see it more as a health issue because I think that stigma kind of tends to exacerbate conditions and it does stop people from reaching out. People tend to not reach out until they're in crisis at the very last minute and I think being able to check in before that point happens would be easier for people if they realised, because most people I don't think realise they necessarily have a problem until you hit that rock bottom, that kind of low where you can't avoid it anymore and you, you have to say something. Verity, do you have anything to add as a final question? Yeah, I think just, you know, really focusing on like an intersectional approach where you take into account a person's background. I think that's so important. And there's such like lack of funding as well, not only for, you know, people from certain backgrounds to go into that as a career there's less encouragement there but also just there's no funding for these services so it's quite difficult because when we do acknowledge that there's something wrong and um, we're kind of at that you know rock bottom point and begging for help we then put on like years long waiting lists so I think the biggest thing that this country needs to see is just like adequate funding of services <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for on this two-part episode with Verity and Lucy Nevitt. I want to say a big thank you to both of them for their incredible bravery in talking about such a taboo subject and breaking down so much stigma in the process. They are inspirations and I'm sure will pave the way for future generations of women to follow in their footsteps to speak out. I'll put some links to where you can find out more about the Gemini Project and follow Lucy and Verity on social media in the show notes. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com com slash vent help uk or you can give us a rating and a review on apple podcasts we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember it's always okay to vent okay.